Hello and welcome to Journal Club, Vet Club. We have uh, another episode of our Journal Club happening today um, and excited to welcome back Dr. Rayanne Foster. Welcome. Thank you. And we have, um, as you may have predicted, a couple of articles that we are going to talk about. So, um, again, going through, I think we've mentioned on um, for the Journal Club before that we are using the ACVAC additional articles reading list as kind of our springboard for what articles we're going to talk about. Um, for this one, these are both, they're big articles and they're both from the list. So we didn't deviate from the list. Um, I wanted to talk about this stuff, one, because I like this stuff, but two, both of these articles are ACVIM consensus statements. And it's really important for people to be aware that these exist for various things. Um, they're common in human medicine to have just a consensus statement. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means and, and how they do it. Um, but it can be really helpful for just guiding, you know, what we collectively know about a disease or, or something, you know, a, a topic, a treatment for a disease, that kind of thing. Um, and it can be really nice to have all of that sort of in one place. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know how, how, I don't know if we ever really like talk about this with students, like, Hey, these no, are a thing. I just learned about it last week. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, there aren't that many of them. There aren't, but there are. Okay. I mean, there's a good many of them now. Um, so I would encourage you, uh, the ACVIM is the the college that has, I think, done the most of these. And you can just Google ACVIM consensus statements and you'll find quite a few that way. Um, and then you might need to dig a little deeper to get to the actual text of things. Um, the, yeah, they're quite lengthy. They are. Um, the ACVAC, uh, the Critical Care College, has tried to do, while not consensus statements so much, um, like these, like the Recover Initiative and ProVets, which are, you know, big initiatives to say there, there's a topic that everybody's kind of doing things differently and maybe we need to come together to um, try to sort that out. So they're not called ACVET consensus statements, but um, similar types of, you know, robust efforts to comb the literature, figure out what's going on. Again, the Recover Initiative has been the, the biggest of those for CPR. Um, but yeah, but ACVIM has really, I would say, led the charge when it comes to doing these types of, you know, getting all the brains together, getting all the people who are like nerdy about a topic and say, let's sit down, um, you know, virtually or physically and like, let's hash this out. So um, the two consensus statements we're going to talk about today are related to IMHA. So um, the we have the ACVIM consensus statement on the diagnosis of immune mediated hemolytic anemia in dogs and cats. And then the ACVIM ACVIM consensus statement on the treatment of IMHA. Um, this one is actually just in dogs for the treatment. Um, so that's what we're that's what we're going over. So you had a chance to kind of look through these a little bit. Um, you noted they're long. Um, what else did you note about them? Um, I really appreciated the fact that um, they supported the fact that we really there's really not a consensus on <laughs> on criteria for reaching a definitive diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so the for the diagnosis in particular, mm -hmm. it's there isn't a gold standard. Right. Yeah. So the one thing that I, I want to talk about a little bit and point out for these consensus statements is just like a little bit of how they happen. Um, I think it's important context for people to understand. If you look on the first page of any of these consensus statements, you'll notice 
more than the average number of authors for a typical paper. And that is by design. You'll also notice um, there's always like the the superscripts, right? The the, mm-hmm. the numbers above the different authors. Yes. And most of the time you in a publication, like most people are kind of from the same place, or maybe one or two different places. But like this is representing a lot of different institutions. Okay. Um, so again, just looking um, under the author kind of affiliations, you notice right off the bat, you've got uh, UPenn, uh, Western University, Midwestern, Royal Veterinary College, Texas A&M, and Ontario Veterinary College are represented um, with these like, I don't know, 14 authors or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the um, the second consensus statement, it is actually even more um, uh, uh, institutions represent. Yeah. The Kennedy Institute of Rheumatology, School of Veterinary Medicine at Penn, Tufts, RVC again, Cornell, Iowa State, Mississippi State, um, and then uh, a private practice, Davies Veterinary Specialist in the UK. So they really do make an effort to try to um, reach a broad um, a broad swath of the specialty community. The other thing um, you wouldn't necessarily know this, just you know, unless you know some of the names, but these are not all small animal internists. Um, there's a few criticalists that were involved in this, pro- probably more than a few. I'm there. Yeah, there's more than a few. There's, um, you know, it's not just small animal internal medicine. They go across the aisle. They say, who else is managing these things? Who else has expertise in this? And uh, again, some people from human medicine, there's, there's going to be, a, it's a big undertaking. Yeah. I did notice they also compared a lot of human studies in these. Yeah. And, nice. and really what they do for these is it's, it's a, it's a little different than um, just like a meta analysis, right? They're not right. just saying, here's what's out there at the end. And this is what makes it helpful for the average person, the average veterinarian is that they're going to say, here's all the information. And then here's what we recommend. Right. Um, and the other thing you'll note is that, that usually for these types of projects is they will they'll kind of tell you how do we go through the literature how do we rate it like what's really what's a strong study what's not such a strong strong study and then they'll give you like a strength of their recommendation this is a for this one i think they went very dichotomous just like strong recommendation weak recommendation Um, but some some types of consensus statements like this will be like this is a 1a which means like we have the most robust support for this statement we have randomized controlled trials that say this this is we have good studies and they are very clear cut what the answer is. Other things like we have really good studies, but even with these really good studies, it's not clear what the right thing is to do. And sometimes those will be like a 1B or a 1C. Other times you're like, this is like a 3B, like we or, or 3A, like everybody agrees that this is the right thing to do, but we don't really have strong evidence to support it. They didn't go that route here. They're pretty much just like, we pretty much all agree or we kind of sort of agree. Um, so they give you, you know, some Im- insight into the strength of that recommendation, which I think is, is nice yes. to, you know, you could be like, I, I don't have to feel so bad that I didn't follow this one. Cause they're not really <laughs> sure about that either. Um, so they, they do talk, uh, I think specifically in the diagnosis paper about the methods that they use, how do they go through, um, you know, quality assessment for the different studies. We're not going to dig into that today because it's kind of boring. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's important and yeah. it's really important that they include this, but um, if you're ever going to undertake something like this or you get invited to be part of it, just know it's going to be a huge time commitment. Yes. Um, but it is so important um, to kind of go through this and they, they summarize things. But the other thing these consensus statements do is they usually organize things like 
it's, it's very orderly. Um, so they're yes. like, okay, it's, you know, numbered, like, here's what we're doing here. Here's, um, you know, here's what we think about this diagnostic test. Here's what we think about this. So they uh, just opening up to just a random page here. So 3.3 evidence of hemolysis. Okay. So then we go down into 3.31 spherocytosis. Okay. Here's a little blurb on spherocytosis and then 3.3 Two, 3.3.2, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, hyperbilirubinemia. What does that mean? Hemoglobinemia, hemoglobinuria, uh, ghost cells, those types of things. And then they'll say like, here's here's our you know situation. And then they'll kind of say, okay, what's the, um, what's the consensus summary? Like, what do we think? And what's the a summary of the evidence? You know, what do we, this is, this is basically where we came from. This is how we got to this consensus. Um, they also will be pretty clear, like, you know, two people disagreed. Yeah. You know, we had nine, I don't remember what the numbers were, but we had nine people that agreed with this and then two people that were like, meh, we, we're not feeling that strongly about it. I also appreciate how succinct each section is. Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy to read. Yeah. Um, and it's not like a tedious article. It's yeah. just page after page of just... Right. So despite the fact that it's long, it's because right. it contains a lot of exactly. useful information, but in manageable chunks. Yes. And it's also easy to go back and be like, wait, uh, I read that a long time ago, but mm-hmm. I just want to remember what did they say about whether or not I should use cyclosporin yeah. or I guess in the diagnosis, like how much should I rely on spherocytosis or is it worth doing a Coombs test? Yep. Like those types of things when you're out there, that's like, that's what you want to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other, the other part yeah. of why it's so lengthy is they have a really good use of tables and graphs and images too. Yeah. Yeah. So again, all the supplementary um, materials to kind of help um, the, you know, they, they discuss, I mean, and it's pretty comprehensive, like you mm-hmm. said, in manageable chunks, they, they're they not going to go through and say, here's every little bit of data like that we use to, to come to this consensus. Here's a little bit, but essentially... Let's get to the point. Let's get to the point. So were there any, um, any things that you kind of looked into and you were sort of surprised about or um, anything that you were like, whoa, I, I, that's different than how I've been doing it? I, don't um, know, I, I feel like it's um, easy to forget that mm-hmm. even things like toxins mm-hmm. are, are underlying causes of IMHA. Yeah, um, particularly drug toxins. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's easy to forget. And so something, a document like this helps remind you of those things. Yeah. Um, but overall, I feel like it's it's kind of... Yeah, I think the diagnosis one, the diagnosis one's a little tricky because there isn't a gold standard and you're kind of like, you know, you kind of build up a case and you have all the evidence that supports it and then you treat it and then they hopefully get better. Um, So for me, I kind of agree with you. The diagnosis one wasn't so much like, aha, like there's some really dramatic things that are very, very different. They're all kind of the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's what we've all been doing. So there hasn't there. I don't think there's been any big like aha moments in the past 20 or 30 years when it comes to diagnosing IMHA. Um, but you can get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty. I would say the the treatment one for me is, is more interesting, a little more exciting. Um, and it's the one where a consensus statement for me is really helpful because in my experience, like particularly with like transferring, you know, immune media cases to internists, they all do it differently. Yeah. 
Um, and I, so, yeah. I will say under the anemia section, um, I found it interesting that they felt a spun PCV, like a manual oh, yeah. PCV was better than a um, hematocrit. Than a hematocrit, yeah, especially when agglutination was present. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I always, I, I've always kind of preferred PCV yeah. to hematocrit, um, what the machines will tell you. This is why the machines will never fully take over. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I like to say. They're still, they need us to back them up. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, again, there's, like you said, there's some little things here and there that are just good reminders. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm super, I, I don't feel like I struggle commonly with like, is this an IMHA or isn't it? Now getting into, like you said, the underlying triggers for it or remembering, you know, that we frequently, I would say, do a mediocre job of ruling out all the potential causes. And we're just like, yeah, idiopathic and we're going to treat it. Now, does that matter? That's a whole nother, maybe a whole nother consensus yeah. statement. <laughs> but um, yeah, we should be trying to find an underlying cause, right? Um, but you're still going to be treating them with immune suppressing drugs. Right. And the other, the other, the other thing you also forget, I mean, I honestly forget that cats get it too. Yeah. They um, don't get it very often. Right. Um, yeah, they, they do their own thing, um, for sure. But it's not but something you typically think about. No, cats are generally cats better are at controlling their own immune systems. Or <laughs> like when dogs they come let them in, go they're high. pretty much almost gone. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Cats are good at hiding exactly. what's going on. I, yeah. It's definitely more rare in cats. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we've anemia in cats is not necessarily rare. We see a lot of anemia in cats, but it's rarely immune mediated. And if it is, it's something wonky. And that was a, the, a little bit of the disappointing factor for me was that they had uh, a consistent statement for diagnosis and workup yeah. in dogs and cats, but not necessarily treatment for yeah. cats. So, um, now, there might be one for cats, and I just, we, they separated it out. Gotcha. I don't know. We can Google that and see, is there an ACVM consensus um, statement? There, I, there, if there isn't, and I'm guessing there isn't, it's probably because there's just not enough research. Yeah. Um, there are very few studies, but let, let's see. I am out of, a... Out of all of the ones that I would like uh, maybe some additional opinions on treatment, it would be the ones for cats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they can't have an opinion if there's nothing to base it on. Very true. Um, so I'm pretty sure there isn't, but let's see. No, that one's for dogs. Yeah, I don't think there is one. Um, okay, so we're just going to have to live with that. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, um, I mean, the mainstay of treatment is still going to be immunosuppressive steroids. Yes. Um, the question is always, when do you, you know, add a secondary one in? So what do you do? Like if you're going to manage an IMHA, like what, what's steroids. your treatment? Just steroids? Start. No, to start. Okay. What, um, and then what recently, would be recently, I guess yeah. with having more input from internists, mm -hmm. um, either is azathioprine or mycophenolate um, yeah. is helpful, uh, but they don't, it takes longer for them to take effect. So yeah. the steroids is, is the mainstay um, to start, but I, ha I, I do feel like I've been using more of the others as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, again, unless I'm the one managing it and usually even then I'm just like, let's see how this goes. Yeah. Um, if they end up having like just obnoxious, um, uh, adverse effects, PUPD effects, yeah. with the Pratt, I mean, then you're like, okay, I guess we need to start them on something else. But like you said, they take longer to affect. So I think that's where a lot of people get where they're like, let's start a second one. Um, in the hopes that once that one's up and running in a few weeks or so, a month or, or whatever, then I can try to wean them off of the steroids faster and then that mm -hmm. will improve owner compliance maybe. Um, but for like for this one, they 
it's a pretty weak recommendation or it's a weak recommendation. They're like, this is a weak recommendation. We're just telling you to add a second um, immunosuppressive drug. I think, what do they say? No. Where is it? Is it that? Yeah. It, a second immunosuppressive drug may be introduced in any dog from the outset of treatment in an effort to decrease the dosage of glucocorticoid required. Cool. Um, so if you're going to do it, you may. Yeah. This is, and that recommendation is weak. Yeah. <laughs> like even the wording in it was pretty meh. And then they're like, yeah, we really don't feel that strongly about this anyway. Um, and this recommend, they, the rationale, this recommendation is based on clinical a clinical experience suggesting that more severe adverse ev effects are observed if high doses of glucocorticoids are used mm -hmm. for prolonged periods. So again, it's not that we don't think steroids work. It's that side effects. We, yeah, the side effects can be just really frustrating and limiting for people. And, you know, clients get to where they're like, uh, we can't live like this. Right. The dog is just drinking all the time, peeing all the time. It's miserable. And so I think what happens over time is people are like, okay, we need to start something else yep. in the hopes that we can wean them off of. And, but from there, they're like, yeah, choose the one you like best. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, uh, which varies a lot. You mean which one people like best? Yeah. 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 And, and so this doesn't tell you you should use azathioprine or you should use mycophenolate or you should use cyclosporin. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to, although they, yeah, they just list them in alphabetical order. Oh, and leflunamide. They also, and that's a weak recommendation. Like choose from these four. There's no way that we can say this one is better. Um, well, and something to consider as well. I don't know if I, I did not delve that deep into this you may have some input um do they talk about the suspected underlying cause as far as what treatment option might be better for each particular um potential underlying cause so i mean it depends each and every one no well just um, in general like broad categories so it's just management of infections but um not no I think at this point they're talking about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. I don't think so. So, um, that's going to be a, a separate issue because we're, I think at this point saying this is either idiopathic or that you, that's a separate consensus statement. Okay. Like if you think they also have a tick-borne illness, then that that's not really covered here. Right. I don't believe it is. I don't remember that being in there at all. Um, uh, so it's really just talking about the immunosuppression part of it. And then the really good stuff at the end that I like is the antithrombosis. <laughs> yeah. um, that's the stuff that I, I, and that's for me is, is really important. Mm -hmm. um, oh wait, no, at the end, supportive care with an, and antimicrobial treatment. Oh no, 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 no. This is, this is just like, because they're immunosuppressed. Sorry. Yes. Um, yeah. I think it's all just like not to treat if you identify something you think is the underlying disease, treat that and yeah. find some other resource to tell you how to treat that. Um, but well, And you mentioned the antithrombotic. Yeah. I think that's something that's widely overlooked. I think in general practice, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think most specialty practices do um, do include some type of thromboprophylaxis. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so I'm happy that, you know, for general thromboprophylaxis, they say, you should do something. And that is a strong recommendation. Yes. Like that's what, now what you should do, it starts to get a little bit trickier. It's hard to, with the available evidence to say, um, more specific beyond that. So basically, you know, another, a weak recommendation is like, you should probably start it when you make the diagnosis. I yes. think that's fair. Um, again, they're, they're making a, again, weak recommendation that you should probably use anticoagulants over, um, antiplatelets. Anti 
if possible. Yeah. Um, that again, a weak recommendation. And, and I, that's what I suggest as well. Like that's, that's in line with what I think based on the available evidence in dogs and in people that, um, if you can, you should try to do a heparin or, um, an oral antitene or something like that. But we also understand that those are either cost prohibitive, yeah. um, they're available. It's just costly for people. And then if you're doing injections multiple times a day, they might just not be able to do that. So yeah. in the absence of being able to do that, then, okay, do an antiplatelet drug. Yeah. Like, please do something. So that the strong recommendation is do something. What that is specifically, we kind of sort of maybe prefer if you do an anticoagulant, but if you can't do that, then okay. They also recommend clopidogrel over aspirin. Um, there's not a whole lot of um, rationale for that specifically. Um, I, I think... And, and that's a weak recommendation to say um, clopidogrel over aspirin. Uh, I actually like to use them in combination because you're going to um, prevent. Aspirin and yeah. clopidogrel. Yeah, because they're working on different mechanisms of for um, platelet inhibition. So they can be um, additive. They can have additive effects. Um, have you run into issues with them already being on um, steroids and doing aspirin at the same time? No, because it's ultra low dose um, aspirin. So no, it's not it. And there are actually studies on that showing that it, I think in like the working dogs, the um, sled dogs, um, that there's not really any difference because the ultra low dose aspirin doesn't really make a difference. Um, so no, I don't have any qualms about having them on prednisone and aspirin because it's again, ultra low dose yeah. aspirin. Um, this is not anywhere near the um, anti-inflammatory doses of aspirin. Um, but I'm fine with clopidogrel too. Like I don't yeah. have a problem if you're using that instead. Like I said, if it's me, if if they've gotten to the point, for, this is for any patient, this is not IMHA. But for me, if I have a patient that has a known thrombus, I'm going to recommend treating them with some type of anticoagulant, either an injectable heparin or an oral anti-10A. If I have to, I can use like a Coumadin bait, like a warfarin. Right. Um, so one of the anticoagulants, I'll talk to the clients about pros and cons of each of those. And I'm going to recommend both aspirin and clopidogrel. If they've already got a clot, I've seen it. It's there. You have formed clots inappropriately. I know you're going to probably keep doing that yeah. unless I know what the underlying disease is and exactly. we've reversed that. Um, and that clot's probably going to keep getting bigger if we don't intervene. So I'm going to be aggressive with those yeah. um, because I, the, the risk of bleeding is, is um, in my experience, quite low and in studies in people also quite low. Uh, it's not zero, but it's pretty darn low. But I also find that like bleeding is really easy to see and to treat and clotting is really hard to see and really hard to treat. Yeah. <laughs> So to me, that's like, ah, it's so, yeah, I just want to prevent that as much as possible. Yeah, and I'm definitely sure there's more human studies that we can rely on for, oh, yeah. for that. Tons of stuff. Now, yeah. again, the risk factors in people for thrombosis are so very different than what we see in animals. Sure. But, um, but at least, like I said, the risk of bleeding is pretty yeah. darn low. Like I tell them, you know, like, don't let your dog play football while on these drugs. <laughs> but like, other than that, like, it's going to be okay. So, so I, of course, for me, it's really important that they make that strong statement saying you should do something. Right. We recognize that um, uh, thrombosis is an important morbidity and contributes to mortality in dogs with IMHA and we should try to do something. And in the absence of clear evidence to say this is the protocol we should use, do something um, right. because they're fairly low risk and we should, we should try. Um, so I think that's, like you said, probably one of the things that especially outside of specialty medicine mm -hmm. gets missed a lot. And it's so yeah. easy. Like, even if you said, look, we're not going to stock any of the heparins. Okay. But 
have some clopidogrel, have some aspirin on your shelf for these types of cases. And um, yeah, so that's well, And the, the, the one thing I also, I mean, yes, it's a high morbidity, high mortality condition, but mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of those that the owners are willing to let us see mm-hmm. throughout, I mean, a lot of them tend to do okay. Yeah. yeah. I tell, so, like I often tell um, the way I say it, I say it differently if I'm talking to students or clients, but <laughs> basically dogs with IMHA die for one of two reasons. They owners run out of money yeah, or they throw a clot. Yeah. Other than that, like I can give you transfusions yeah. until we stop this process of destroying your own red blood cells in, the, but that they, you die from some complication, which is almost always a clot um, or because the owners run out of funds. Yeah. Yes, you could run out of blood products. Yes, you, I mean, there are other things that obviously can happen. But medically speaking, if you can just keep them alive with transfusions until you break that cycle of destroying your own red blood cells, I can keep you alive unless you throw a massive clot somewhere. Yeah. So those are the things that I'm like, I need the owners to be on, like to know at least where they are financially. And I want to prevent the clots because no matter how much money you have, if you throw a massive PTE and die, I can't fix that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the, like the mainstay for me is, obviously immunosuppress them, but transfuse them as, as needed, um, which that's a whole nother discussion too, right? Um, but preventing the clots. Right. So I, f- I feel huge. like the abstract in this one, if you're just reading the abstract, you Ooh, might think that- the, You're not going to get much out of it. No. <laughs> it's not the kind of paper where but you can read the abstract. It also might give you more of a, a, a grim outlook. Oh, okay. I'm not even sure I read the abstract. It's, it's associated what is the with abstract? considerable morbidity and mortality. I mean, yeah. That's what they're basically, Yeah considerable i don't yeah, know what that exactly. adjective it's very means subjective yeah they're just like it's important you should read yes. this i think that's what yeah. that it's about but it is i mean i think anybody who has dealt with it because they are expensive mm-hmm. and so that's a lot of true. people are like i you know that's also an interesting question though because we see a very skewed population like we at, at, at you know referral hospitals uh, teaching hospitals, specialty hospitals, we don't see the IMHAs that the anemia never falls below 25 and they respond Very really true. quickly. Like they don't get referred to us. So right. the ones that um, never get started on an antiplatelet, you know, drug and um, never end up having a complication, like we're not seeing that population. Right. So there is definitely going to be some skewing of the results and the studies that are being done are typically not being done on those patients because they're not coming to research institutions. Right. Um, so if you're in general practice and you want to do a study, you should totally do one. You should totally pull yeah. the records from your, um, uh, you know, your hospital, your clinic and say, how many IMHAs have you diagnosed and treated? And how many of them have never needed a transfusion? How many of them just went on PRED? How many of them never developed any um, complications that you recognized? Like, where are the studies on yeah. those patients? Because that does, I mean, I, like, I try to remember that when in what I do is I'm generally by design seeing the sickest versions of the cases that are out there right people aren't referring the ones that get better after a few weeks like there's no need to refer that one in fact we had um a case referred to us the other day um for an itp and uh you know the dog was diagnosed with itp by the referring vet started on um uh, immunosuppressive doses of prednisone I don't have the details of why they ended up adding cyclosporin later, but they ended up adding in cyclosporin later. And after they added the cyclosporin and the dogs started, it sounded like it responded to the steroids. It responded to steroids. Uh, they also had it on, I think, doxycycline while they were waiting for... Um, uh, titers. Yeah, tick titers. But um, the platelets apparently normalized. And then they ended up starting it on cyclosporin, maybe because they were going to try to get it off. The, I, I don't really have the, the all the details there. It started vomiting when they started the cyclosporin. So they stopped 
stop the cyclosporin and then it kept vomiting. So then they stopped the prednisone and the doxycycline <laughs> and then the Surprise. platelets dropped again. Yeah. And so, but that dog was fine. It wasn't, it was apparently not petechia, no petechia, no ecchymosis that we could find. It wasn't anemic. And it was just like, just started back up on the steroids. Yeah. Um, so that one came to us, but like normally wouldn't have. Yeah. It was only because it started vomiting on the cyclosporin that I even knew about that one. So this one responded lickety split, like right away after starting the steroids. Um, and until it had a presumably bad reaction to the cyclosporin, would have never heard about this case. So we maybe, don't tend to see those. the retrospective studies looking at uh-huh. cases that we see here sure. are skewing those Oh, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. So I think we need to look at, um, for IMHA, ITP, some of these cases at the cases that don't ever come. Yeah, like yeah. getting, uh, you know, find like a series of practices and then just be like, can we comb through your records? Or better yet, if you're out there in practice, do it yourself. Yeah. That's it. Send me an email. I'll help you. <laughs> um, it takes time. Like it takes effort, but like it would be really valuable to yeah, see like if there's a whole other population out there of patients that are not being represented in these studies because we don't know about them. Yeah, and find out what they did. Yeah. Probably a lot less than what we typically do. And and again, that's maybe fine, but all these recommendations, somebody could be out there saying like, I never do all of that and mine are doing fine. It's like, okay, but what about the ones you refer elsewhere? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but there might just be, you know, different populations. The other thing I have observed when it comes to immune mediated diseases is that there are regional differences, like huge regional differences. That's an interesting thought. Oh, absolutely. No, it like, cause I've never left this region. So, I know <laughs> so you don't know. Um, but in different regions of the world, you get different presentations of IMHA and ITP. It's, and, and here's, here's my theory on this. You ready? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure there's no such thing as idiopathic IMHA or idiopathic ITP. There's viruses or probably viruses, honestly, more than bacteria out there that are triggering this and we just don't know about them yeah. or prions or something even scarier than that. Or maybe that's where the robots are doing. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm pretty sure they're never um, truly idiopathic, but they're probably a virus and you know the body's going to kick that at some point. But in the meantime, it's gone a little haywire. And so it doesn't matter that we're not treating the virus. Eventually the body clears that. It's just, we have to treat the over the overzealous response. Um, So I think there's just uh, billions of viruses out there that we're not aware of, which is a little bit terrifying, but also our immune system generally does a pretty good job. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, and, but I think that would explain the regional differences, right? A different virus might in this region might trigger a different response, um, you know, different kind of morbidity or a different um, pathogenesis of a different disease. That's not the word I want, but you know, Ultimately, probably also trickles down to how they respond to different treatments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So people are like, oh, well, here we do this. And it's like, that probably works fine for you there. But if this is working for these guys over here. um, So that would, that's another thing that I find kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, But anecdotally, I'm, I'm, you definitely hear people talk about, oh, well, the IMHAs we see here, the ITPs we get here are very different. And people so just have different clinics ex- from all different regions yes. to reach out. Yes, this <laughs> so is what we're talking about. Out. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to need to end with some virologists if we, if we, or we just want to stay ignorant of that. That's fine too. But <laughs> um, if there's any virologists out there that want to be like, hey, there's a whole population of patients that I'm pretty sure have some infectious trigger and we just don't know about it. Yeah. That's my theory. I'm pretty sure it's a virus. Yeah. Because I feel like bacteria we would have found by now. Come see us in 10 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, 10 days. That's fine. You can come on the show. Tell me me your theories. Um, I'm sure there's some world-renowned virologists listening to this podcast. Um, Anyhow, so those were the articles that we had for today. 
Um, again, we're not going to go through and read all of them to you. These are, these are the kinds of things that you should be familiar with, um, know they exist and have them as a ready reference uh, is in my opinion for, for sure. treatment. And the other thing that is nice is this is for all the people who are involved in creating this consensus statement is there ideally there's a plan for, Hey, let's get together in another 10 years and update this. Um, because hopefully, I mean, they do end with like, Hey, future directions for research. If you're thinking about doing research, I don't think they suggested ours that we just discussed here that, um, general practice, uh, practices need to get in on the, on the game here. I think they mentioned several, but both of these mentioned several areas that needed more, yeah. um, information. Yeah. I'm trying to go back and remember what those things were. The VCCIS task forces were formed when um, the, the consensus statement task forces were formed. We began by identifying a focus question that represented an important problem, namely, what is the evidence that infection, neoplasia, drugs, vaccines, and other comorbidities cause IMHA in dogs and cats? Our original intent was to perform a review of the literature. However, it quickly became apparent that very few studies in the veterinary literature were designed to determine if a comorbidity causes IMHA. So that's right. probably also why they didn't talk about like here's what you should do to treat it. Cause like, yeah. we don't even know if these things cause it. Um, so basically they're saying my theory about viruses causing all of them. They're like, you can't say that you don't know, which is true. Mm -hmm. I don't, that's my theory. Um, at any rate, so they, you know, they're like, yeah, some of these things make sense, but we really can't say. So that's one of the big ones that like, we need to, we need to figure that out. Um, what do they say at the end of the diagnosis one? I'm trying to remember now. Recommendations for future research. Um, pathogenesis heterogeneity is likely to identify novel biomarkers of disease activity and prognosis, as well as avenues for more specific and targeted treatment. I don't know about that prognosis thing. I don't really like prognostic <laughs> studies. Um, if anyone has listened to this podcast for a little bit, you've probably heard me rant about, um, prognostic studies. Um, they're good if you're going to do other research, that's yes. fine. But for anything else, um, and for a group as oh, a whole. This is a good one. Such studies could also explore the prevalence and extent of thrombosis in dogs. Yes, I can get behind that one. We don't have <laughs> good numbers for that. Um, and then we should do some RTCs or RCTs, randomized control trials. Good idea. Um, all right, that's it. There's really nothing earth shadowing there. No. Nope. So um, be aware that, uh, and Google ACVAM consensus statements for yes. some of those big diseases. And then you can just kind of have in your mind, oh, I think there's a consensus statement on that. Um, and so that's really nice um, when organizations get together um, and they have, they probably even like provide lunch for a couple of those days when they talk about it. <laughs> it's it's a huge undertaking. I believe it. Um, it really is these types of things. I was involved well, the reference with, pages are like yeah. eight pages long. Yeah. It's like almost the length of the article. Yeah. Not quite, but it's a lot and it takes a lot to go through that. So like I said, I haven't um, been involved with any ACVIM consensus statements, but the, um, some of the big undertakings for the critical care ones, um, recover and then the provets, like I was involved in one aspect of the provets one for tag and it was so much work for Winty. like those little, like three paragraphs. Yeah. So you're like, yeah, that took a yeah. lot of work for those three paragraphs. So the amount of output that you get, um, doesn't, do it justice, the amount of work that goes sure. into it. But it also, like, that's the point is yeah. to put a little bit out there for people to be like, here, quick well, reference, here's what you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you see any of those authors or, you know, just thank them. Yeah. <laughs> appreciate thank you. it. It's super helpful. Yes. We appreciate you. Um, so I think that is all that we have for today's articles. <laughs> 
And um, so, yeah, we will plan to, uh, I don't rem- I don't think I've picked articles for next week. I don't know if anybody else has, but um, hopefully we will be back next week uh, for another Journal Club. Thank you again, Dr. Foster, for being here. Thank you for having me. See you next time. Bye.